Hey there, welcome to Culture by Culture, a multidimensional exploration of Black and Asian pop cultural ties. I'm your formerly musically inclined host, Delia, and today is the first episode in our Musical Connections miniseries. Joining me is the hip-hop artist, speaker, and activist, Jason Chu. Hey, thanks for having me. No, thanks for joining me. I'm so excited to have you. For those who don't know, first and foremost, he's a hip-hop artist. I think we need to get that out of the way. But the way I found him actually was through a talk he did called Appropriators or Originators. And he was so insightful. He does a lot of work in the activist space. We will not retread all of the ground from that talk. I will link to that talk for y'all to go find if y'all want to find it. It's very, very good. I highly recommend. But to start us out, I would love to know, we'll start with your music. Who were your first artistic influences yeah so i grew up you know i'm a chinese american kid i grew up uh in a very white suburb of of delaware so growing up i I didn't get the chance to get exposed to a lot of hip-hop and it was through my boy yusuf uh we were sitting in class one day and i was talking about you know oh what music are you into what i'm hearing on the radio it doesn't really inspire me and he was like look i've got this stuff for you so he burned me three cds he burned me three albums he burned me Aesop Rock, Labor Days. He burned me Deltron 3030 by Del the Funky Homo Sapien. And he burned me Volume 2 by Jay-Z. It blew my mind because I'd never heard language used that way. Uh, Aesop Rock is a very abstract, poetic, underground rapper. Del the Funky Homo Sapien, obviously very like, mm-hmm. you know, kind of like Black Hippie before TDE, you know, very Afrofuturistic. Uh, and then Jay-Z, of course, like just the precision and the cleverness that he used language with. So it really started from there for me. You know, obviously Jay-Z is super mainstream, but definitely very lyrical stuff and stuff that really, really helped build a world. That was what I got really inspired by. So from there, I got into like Nas and Wu-Tang and most Def and Talib Kweli, Black Star, mm-hmm. you know, just all of this stuff. Because I think what I was telling uh, Youssef was I was like, you know, what's on the radio, it seems very disposable. You know, it seems very much like, hey, it's it's just cool. It's just fun. But it's not really something that can that can feed you. You know what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. he put me onto a lot of hip hop that was, I think, all of those artists I mentioned even though they got very different voices, very different sounds in some cases. They're all artists that are interested in cultivating something, building a legacy. And now, of course, you know, the Fugees, Ms. Lauren Hill, these were all early, early influences in, in my development as an artist. That's what I was going to say. I was going to say those initial three. That's so interesting. They're very different artists. Oh, yeah. It's sound wise. But what you spoke to is so true. I think a lot of people can relate to that idea of listening to the radio. And it all is just very high level, it feels, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, all of those artists really get to the depth of, I think, humanity. I think that's Mm -hmm. what I look for in music is I really want to explore how I'm experiencing humanity and how other people are putting words to that. So, yeah, I can relate a lot to that. I'm shocked to hear you say that you're from Delaware. That's awesome. Never been. But it makes me wonder how you go from, okay, now this whole world has been open to me. And I'm sure that was very, like, formative. But I wonder how you go from that to deciding, oh, you know what? I want to pursue hip hop as a passion and a career. The way I often talk about it is, you know, my parents, they're religious, they're Christian. They always raise me to think that, you know, I'm here to, to do something. You know, I'm not just here to get by. I'm not just here to acquire resources for myself. They raised me to think like, hey, I'm here to do something that helps others, that leaves the world better, 
than when I came here, you know, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so, so I went to college, I went to university and I started off studying biology, but then I wound up majoring in philosophy because Mm -hmm. I felt like, you know, I struggled with mental health and depression a lot, a lot, a lot in high school and physically, biologically, I was healthy and fine. But in terms of my well-being, I was struggling for meaning. I was struggling for purpose. I was struggling for affirmation that, you know, my life, my existence mattered. And honestly, I found a lot of that, yes, through art and through community and through buying into a different worldview than, than, than I had been personally. And so in college, you know, I went into college, I was studying biology, but I kept getting plagued by these thoughts of, you know, what does it matter if someone is medically healthier? If, you know, in terms of their philosophy, in terms of their life outlook, they're lost, you know? Mm -hmm. So I started majoring in philosophy and then I went into nonprofit work. I did four years of work in like community services and in community building. And then I was living in Beijing and I realized that the kinds of people I was trying to reach, whether that's in a religious venue, whether that's in a nonprofit, you know, community services venue, a lot of the people that I'm most passionate about connecting with, I wasn't connecting with them through any of that. I was connecting with them through music. I was active in the underground rap scene. I've always been, since I discovered hip hop, always been writing, always wanted to perform, always wanted to record, but I always thought it would be a hobby. But what I realized in Beijing was the kids I was connecting with and building relationships with through the music were actually the people who would not, you know, there were not necessarily other venues for them to find a place to express themselves, to find a community that would embrace them. And I started thinking this music, yes, it's a passion of mine, but it might be worth devoting my life to because of the opportunity to connect with people, to help people. And so that's why I moved to LA. I moved to LA to really make a run at this music thing because I felt like there's a lot of great professors out there. There's a lot of great doctors and mental health professionals and ministers. And it felt like there was more of a unique opportunity for me to have my impact through the music in a way that, you know, I'm not going to say no one else was doing it, but I'm going to say there were fewer people trying to have this social impact through music, especially Asian Americans in hip hop. There were Mm. fewer people, you know, there, there was a more obvious career progression. If you wanted to be an Asian American studies professor, if you wanted to be, you know, a youth minister, if you wanted to be in 501c3 work versus in terms of in music, arts and culture, I felt like my background in terms of the mentorship I'd received, the, the life experiences I'd learned from, there was more fertile ground for me to try to translate that into music. Uh, and that led to, you know, an incredible ride that I'm still on. I think that's incredible. I so agree with the power of music being such a connector because I think we see now there are people coming to music who don't even know the language, but music Mm -hmm. has that power to transcend like language barriers, cultural barriers. And I know that I've had mental health issues and struggles throughout my life. And, you know, I've gotten counseling. I'm a Christian as well. Like, you know, I pray all that stuff and all that is helpful. And you need all of that. You need mentors. You need all of that. But 
in some of the darkest times or the most confusing times of my life, like I can point to specific albums that really mm -hmm. just were sort of my rock. And that is the power of music. And I think what you do is very interesting. And to know that it was so purposeful, you saw this space and you're like, you know what, nobody's doing this. And specifically, yes, the power of music in general, but hip hop, because the history of hip hop and what it came to do, which was to express a message, I think is really cool. What has been your experience coming into this space from that perspective? Because I think a lot of mainstream hip-hop currently has kind of moved away from the core messages that hip-hop used to be serving. What has that been like navigating and coming into that space? Yeah, I mean, I'm a fan of a lot of it. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm -hmm. everything from the artists I named to, you know, I love Lil Baby and Polo G. Mm -hmm. Man, you know, they just locked up Chef G. But, like, a lot of that Brooklyn drill, like, mm -hmm. I'm such a fan of the culture. And someone pointed out, I forget, it was some hip hop figure pointed out that, you know, hip hop is not just one thing. It's not just supposed to be all serious and woke. It's not supposed to be all like party and bullshit. It, it has a breadth to it. It has a spectrum to mm -hmm. it. And I think one thing that I've really learned from my queer friends is just how important it is to reject binary thinking. Because I think when you For have sure. this black and white in and out kind of mentality, as though, you know, the whole gatekeeping thing is, is, is I think kind of silly. So I love a Cardi B record, you know, <laughs> I love, I mean, Ice Spice, like Boys a Liar is a crazy joint, you know, mm -hmm. but that's not necessarily the kind of music that I'm making or that most of my records are. But to me, I think when we reject binary thinking as though like, Hey, this is the music I like, or this is the music I make, or this is the music that most resonates with me. So therefore, that's the only thing that should exist. I think mm -hmm. that we start locking ourselves into these very self-righteous, gatekeepy kind of mentalities. And to me, what's important, and this is true in hip hop culture, this is true, I would say, in, in Asian American media and representation, is that we need a broad spectrum of human experience that we're allowed to have. So in hip hop, like this is why I really love artists like Polo G. Because, you know, Polo G has some drill anthems. He has definitely some really hard shit. But he also mm -hmm. has really emotionally vulnerable stuff. He's got stuff where he just talks on his family, you know. And they always point out, this is why people love Tupac. Because Tupac could mm -hmm. make a hit him up. He could make a Dear Mama. He could make a I Get Around. You know, he showed the breadth of black manhood that is allowed to exist. And I think that's how we really push against stereotype and constraints the author and scholar Viet Nguyen who's got his series The Sympathizers coming out this year Viet Nguyen has this concept of narrative plenitude which is this idea that for people who are more proximal to power in a society they have a narrative plenitude where they're allowed to be anything you know you can have a poor broke white man who's a crack addict you can have a rich, successful white man who's, a, they're allowed to be complex. They're allowed to be multiple things at once. Whereas what keeps marginalized peoples internally and socially, externally, what keeps us boxed in is a narrative scarcity. When somebody sees, you know, a brown woman, when somebody sees uh, an East Asian man, when somebody sees a marginalized body, the number of things, the spectrum of what we're allowed to be or what we're imagined to be exactly is so narrow. And mm -hmm. that's why I think what makes for healthy culture 
is not a monolithic culture that's weighted toward one side or another, but is a broad culture that within which people can be imagined, can imagine themselves and have viable, sustainable opportunities to exist at different points on that spectrum throughout their lifetime. And, and that's what I love about hip hop. I, I was just talking with a songwriter the other day about, I think hip hop is in such an interesting place. And I kind of love it because you can have everything from super woke raps to super thoughty raps to, you know, gangster shit to, you know, club shit. Like, like there's so many different things that hip hop can be right now. I think that's a healthy thing. As long as we know that there's that breadth, as long as we don't start thinking, oh, you know, Ice Spice, like that is hip hop. Like Ice Spice is right. in hip hop, but Ice Spice is not like, this is not the new direction and the new limits of imagination for what this art form and this culture can be. Sometimes I feel like, and this is just as a creator in general, a lot of time, the powers that be, whatever you want to call them, they make those margins even slimmer <laughs> where you know, how you can come as a Black creator. And I love the idea of honoring the breadth that we can be and pointing out, like, we are as varied and live as colorful lives as a white man who's allowed to be anything and everything that he's ever going to be, right? Mm -hmm. Going more into your work and its outlook specifically, you know, your work pays a lot of homage to both directly and indirectly to immigrant families, activist figures, and your hip-hop predecessors. And I was wondering how looking to the past informs your particular creative process and your general artistic outlook. Yeah, I would say I don't look to the past so much as I stand in it or stand on it, mm -hmm. you know, because mm -hmm. I'm not a traditionalist in that sense. Like, you know, like I said, love Yasin Bey, love Wu-Tang, love Jay, Nas, but I'm not trying to recreate the past. You know what? Mm -hmm. Frankly, I always say hip hop made me Asian American. And what I mean by that is... As a Chinese kid growing up in a predominantly white suburb, hip hop was the first cultural space that I entered into that centered the norms of that space around something other than white normativity and white supremacy. And I always say that hip hop was my first ethnic studies class. You know, before I took any degrees, before I took any college courses or whatever, hip hop was what implicitly like you're saying it's not always explicit just implicitly taught me how to center voices of color narratives of color histories of color and it did it yes of course you got your public enemy and you got your nas but you know it's the james brown you know say it loud i'm black and proud mm -hmm. and growing up listening to hip-hop music the question I inevitably asked was, well, what's the Asian American version of that? You know, what's the Asian, and, and I don't mean Asian American version of hip hop. I mean, the Asian American version of Afrocentrism, of mm -hmm. black joy and black pride. You know, what is Asian American joy? What does an Asian centric existence look like? Because I didn't grow up in, in a large AAPI community. I live in Los Angeles now, and it's different from my friends who grew up out here. But for me growing up, mid Atlantic, it wasn't like I had a ton of Asian American references all around me. I had to go looking for them. And so, you know, I listened to like a K-Dot, 
you listen to how to pimp a butterfly not only lyrically but musically vibe wise aesthetically he's channeling so much of the black power movement and black excellence from the 60s and 70s and so i went in search of you know what's the asian excellence what are the touch points of asian american identity that could be my symbols and signs it's not me doing this and i'm the first and i'm the one to break through it's how can i locate myself in a lineage in ancestry of people who've been doing this and and that's when i started doing the reading and i started finding and seeking out the mentors who taught me about what it was like to be an asian american activist in the 70s what it was like to be active in the growing asian american pacific islander movement in the 80s and 90s and now whenever i'm making anything i i was talking to my producer we were sitting down just last night working on stuff and we had a long convo about what motivates me and what inspires me and i always say it doesn't matter what this song is about it's going to be asian american because i'm here you know it's going to be asian american because when i come to the track It's not just me that's here. It's everyone who's inspired me, who's spoken to my life, who's motivated me, who's mentored me, and that is for me how I root in this history is just by having this constant awareness that I'm not the first, I'm not the only, I'm not new high water mark. I'm one bearer of a lineage in a long line of people who have done this work, and that line will continue beyond me. So that's how i locate myself in a conversation with the past and and bring that to the table every time you talked about how hip hop was your first like ethnic studies class and it reminded me i don't know if you've heard of him red ho he was a not a jazz musician cuz he like many jazz artists quibbled with the word jazz mm-hmm. but played baritone saxophone and called his music afro asian futurism but he described the black experience as catalyzing his own self awareness as a chinese american and i think it's so interesting how I don't know if it's super common but like that is not an uncommon thing to experience when you look back in our passive Asian American activism and black activism how closely these two things were linked especially when you're looking at the civil rights movement in that era. So I think that's really cool <laughs> that they're intertwined like that for you as well. I do wonder what the process has been like coming to understand the cultural exchange that occurs as a Chinese mm-hmm. American hip hop artist. Yeah, it's so interesting, right? Because we can look back on it and we can analyze it through our analytical ideological frameworks now, but in the moment, it's just, you know, you're operating off touch and off vibe. And mm-hmm. for me, I'll say I always felt very welcome in hip hop spaces, you know, because mm-hmm. I think people saw that I was passionate about the culture, that I was interested, that I was there to learn. One of my OGs, Dallas Penn, he was in the New York sneaker community, the Ralph Lauren community. He was he ran with the Decepts in the 80s up and around New York and when I was younger when I was in college uh, I would take the train into New York and I'd run around the city with Dallas like he'd take me to Fordham Road he'd take me to Brooklyn he'd take me he'd show me around we'd go cop sneakers you know I literally like apprentice to this man you know like I saw mm-hmm. the way he moved and it wasn't like I had an articulated ethics of cultural interchange it was that we lived it people modeled it for me You know, mm-hmm. there were black men 
and women who looked out for me, who saw my fledgling passion and interest and welcomed it and encouraged Mm -hmm. it. And I can't help but think that that model that they showed me of welcoming me and teaching me, you know, uh, Dallas and I would be, we'd be on the subway, we'd be on the bus around the city and he would drop gems. He'd be like, yo, you know, like I went to high school here and this is what it was like in the eighties. And, you know, this is what this sneaker represents. You know, this is why the Air Force One is called the Uptown. This is what Air Force Ones was like in the early nineties. He just modeled it for me and show me like, I didn't know a lot of shit about hip hop culture, about black culture, about the black Mm -hmm. experience in New York. But instead of looking at me and saying, do better, he brought me under his wing and he showed me how to do better. And he showed me what, you know, and now we've got words like allyship or solidarity, but really what it came down to was just an older dude who saw a passion and a hunger and an interest from a younger dude and saying, let me put you on game. Let me guide you in the right direction. And I think that the more that I've grown and that I've done research and done reading and learned about solidarity, learned about anti-imperialism, learned about decolonial movements, the more that I think that that is the heart of any kind of pushing against oppression is this need, you know, people unite and let's all get down, you know, like that idea (laughs) that call to disparate groups who are fighting the same fight against the same enemy in their own corners coming together. And that's how we get up together. But it didn't start by me reading theory and me doing a degree. And it started by me being led around New York City, copping sneakers, taking the train home and just feeling like, man, that was like super cool. I want more of this. Mm-hmm. Does that it does that answer? Does that help? <laughs> yeah, no, that absolutely answers the question. My thoughts were actually just that I feel like a lot of people are a scared to do what you did now in today's internet age, but also I don't know how for good reason. I think people are very sensitive around these subjects as far as cultural appropriation and stuff like that goes. And so a lot of gatekeeping happens. And I, I'm i not going to tell everyone that that's always unnecessary because there are bad actors for sure. Absolutely. But I worry that do we still live in a time with, you know, the internet? Is that still possible? Like, I think it is. But that's where my thoughts were, you know, that worry that we can't have these authentic experiences as easily because that's such a beautiful story, right? That somebody just saw in you what was inside and nurtured it. Yeah. I agree with you so much about how I think that the digital age has this way of flattening human experience Mm -hmm. to where anytime we interact with someone online, we're not actually interacting with a person. We're interacting with content, right? We're interacting Mm -hmm. with like, you know, it's like the anime, right? Ghost in the shell, but there's no Mm -hmm. ghost anymore. It's just the shell. We're just right. encountering these like trails of husks that people leave. This is why even, you know, as often as possible, if somebody wants a call, I try to make it a Zoom call. If mm-hmm. somebody's, if we're trying to really talk and build a partnership, I'm, I'm, I, I try to make it an in-person meet because there's so much human empathy and, and humanity that gets reflected when we get to see each other's faces, when we get to see how someone moves and then in person, like the vibe, like, And that is so important. And I think that so often people are very aggressive and it's easy to be aggressive when you're not interacting with a person. You're actually just interacting with content that they put out in the world, right? Mm -hmm. Versus if you're actually talking with someone, humans have evolved 
for, you know, a long, long time to be able to read the nonverbals, right? And when you're online, all of that context, all of that deeply rooted, the, the stuff that triggers empathy, the stuff that helps you sense if someone's a bad actor or if they're actually like genuine, all of that gets thrown out the window and you've just got like 140 characters, 280 characters, a, a 60 second video to base your judgment on who they are. Of course, you're going to dehumanize them. So that's why I think like, yeah, we can do some of the work online and, and it certainly can augment the work of community building and solidarity, but we still, still, still have to fight to see human beings, fully embodied human beings moving around in three dimensional space as reality and everything online is an augmentation of that versus what I see happening over the last 10 years is we started thinking that the online stuff is the real stuff and the people behind it. Well, that's less important than just this virtual shell that has no ghost in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Hey there, just checking in. I wanted to see how you're enjoying the episode. You're liking it? Well, that's great. Have you left a rating or review yet? Actually, contrary to popular belief, ratings don't really help the podcast algorithm. But what they really do is let me know how you're liking the show and lets future listeners know what fun to expect. So feel free to leave me a review full of your hopes, dreams, and favorite things, or simply give the podcast a rating on your favorite podcasting app. This humble podcast host appreciates it. I know there are people who want to explore culture or are interested in these cultural exchanges. And I know people get nervous around it. And, you know, I feel very fortunate <laughs> in that, you know, this is a podcast that focuses on the culture exchange when it comes to pop culture. And that's because I grew up a nerd. I first was into anime and video games. And that grew from there into other areas. But luckily, I got to make my mistakes offline. And when I was really, really young, mm -hmm. you know, and have those embarrassing moments, like I've told a story, I think on maybe an IG live, maybe it was another episode, I don't remember. But I got into anime really young because my dad also watched anime and things like that. Hey. So I grew up watching Dragon Ball Z, etc, getting it from Blockbuster. <laughs> so I remember getting to sixth grade, I'm now into anime in my own right, I like different shows. And my best friend at the time had bought me this journal as a gift that had Chinese writing on it. And I didn't know it was Chinese. I just thought mm. it looked Japanese. And I was so excited because I was just mm -hmm. all in in the space. And I remember I took it to school. How old are you in sixth grade? What, like 12? Yeah, 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 yeah. There was a it was the beginning of school because we ended up being friends, thankfully. <laughs> but there was this Chinese American girl who saw my <laughs> journal and she was like, why do you have a journal that says fall, winter, spring on it? <laughs> and I I remember I was so embarrassed and that was this moment of me realizing like, oh, you have to be thoughtful. Like it was such a learning moment for me that I grew exponentially from after that. But I got to do that offline and when I was 12 mm -hmm. and I feel like it's really nerve wracking as you get older and then now we're online to explore that. And what I found really helpful, again, in your talk, Appropriators and Originators, everybody go watch it. I will link it in the show notes. But you offer this potential pathway to authenticity as a solution to navigating cultural appropriation. Firstly, could you describe it for me in brief? Yeah. So in this talk, I articulate a thesis of or an imagination of what cultural interchange and existing in cultural spaces beyond your own origin can look like. And it's this sort of four-step pathway, right? And I think 
I am a big fan of benign interest or what some might call uh, casual appropriation, because I think that's how you get to know others. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like if there's no initial attraction or something that catches your eye or something that piques your curiosity, we're all just going to stay in our own little corners. You know what I'm saying? Like Mm -hmm. certainly if you think that the world is fine and we don't need any change and everybody should just keep to themselves, cool. But I think most of us agree that things are not what they should be. And it's going to take all of us together doing work Mm -hmm. together. We need allies. We need people beyond just me and mine to make Mm -hmm. some kind of change, whether that comes politically, whether that comes socially, whatever it is. So the first step is this benign cultural interest. You know, it could be in one era, it was Kung Fu films and another era was anime. In this era, it's K-pop or, you know, vice versa, you know, like whether that's hip hop or, you know, streetwear or sneaker culture Mm -hmm. or, you know, like club and ball culture, Mm -hmm. whatever it is, there's something that makes you go, yo, this is really interesting. And then some people are just content to be superficial with it, right? They're content to take the aesthetic. They're content to consume the product and not dive deeper into the community. But I think that, you know, morally, ethically, but also just if you really love something, like, you know, you look at like, this is why Japanese people make better denim than Americans right now, because they loved (laughs) denim culture so much, they bought the original mills. You know, when cone mills shut down, Japanese denim manufacturers bought the original selvage denim mills, moved them to Japan, and they were such a fan of the culture that they went beyond appropriating the aesthetic to studying the history, understanding the context. And so I think step two is starting to step into that deeper appreciation, starting to go beyond, hey, it looks cool. Hey, I'm watching it on YouTube to, hey, let me go to the show. Let me understand the history. You know, even like, why does K-pop exist? And if you understand why mm-hmm. K-pop exists, that means that you got to understand the colonial history of Korea. It means you got to understand the imperial relations between the United States and South Korea. It means you got to understand the interplay between blackness, which was often seen through a military context, through the American yeah. military occupying South Korea. And, and not everybody got to be as nerdy as you and I are. But, <laughs> you know, you got to, what I always say is like, yo, if you're dating someone and you love them, you're going to want to know about them. You're going to want to know where they came up, how they grew up, who shaped them. And it's the same for cultures. If you love hip hop, if you love K-pop, if you love anime, you're going to start asking, okay, you know, why is... Takashi Murakami has this great thesis about how all Japanese art post-World War II is a response to the atomic bombing, is a response Mm -hmm. to this cataclysmic event, to this, you know, sort of war atrocity that occurred. And, you know, if you love the art, you're going to dig into that. And then from there, so you go from appropriation to appreciation to what I would call apprenticeship right? You actually connect with people in that community. If you really love something, you're going to want to embed in it. You're not going to stand. And you know, Lord knows a lot of people do this, especially in the digital age. It's easy for us to just stay static where we are at and just pick pieces of a culture, but never step out of where we're at, you know? Mm -hmm. But I think that if you really want to immerse in a culture, then what you got to do is instead of just, you know, sitting behind your screen in your house, in your neighborhood, with your friends around you and picking pieces out, you got to move yourself. 
and that's what I call apprenticeship is when you actually enter into a community and, and you, and we both know you can be a tourist in a community, but the only way to enter into a community is to build relationships, right? People Correct. who will co-sign you, people who will invite you places, people who will correct you, you know, correction is not punishment, you know, correction is learning. And so apprenticeship, the road goes from you just sitting and consuming to you having a bilateral relationship with members of a community. Mm-hmm. And I think that after, so, so you go from appropriation where you know nothing and you're just seeing the aesthetic to appreciation where you're starting to understand the people and the history and the context and the community behind the aesthetic to apprenticeship where you're actually interfacing with people who are tied to the community that originated, right? Right. The roots mm-hmm. of the tree. And then once you're there and once, you know, people are saying, Hey, you know, we trust you. You're not an outsider looking to exploit, looking to appropriate, looking to pillage. You're actually someone mm-hmm. who loves the culture and, and you're a part of the culture now. And then you can start becoming a, a producer and a creator and you can add to the culture. But the problem is I think a lot of people want to short circuit that, especially in the internet age, which is so aesthetically driven. It's so easy to go from appreciation to thinking you can be a cultural producer, you know, and that's how you get people. Like, I don't really fuck with Lil Dicky because of his comments. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe he's grown and changed. I don't know. But, you know, like he, he said so many things that showed that he had no clue why hip hop. Either he had no clue or he just really didn't care. Didn't care. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that that's the thing in an Internet viral age where the consumers of a product are not the people who love and came up in the culture, but they're just people who love the aesthetic. Someone like a little Dicky can come in and they're like, oh, he raps so good. We all know that hip hop doesn't give a fuck about how good you rap if it's not real. You know, mm-hmm. you can be as technically complex as you want to be. If it's not thorough, no one's going to accept you. But now you've got someone who shortcuts that cycle. There's no appreciation. There's no apprenticeship. It's just, I like the aesthetic. Now let me recreate it. And that's why that's the unethical way to do cultural production. But I think the ethical way to take these steps and to cover your tracks and make sure that you're not doing harm is to go through that work of understanding the context for yourself, connecting to the community for yourself. And then eventually when you're invited in or you're co-signed, right? The co-sign is so big in hip hop, in in, in this culture. Uh, Once you've got that co-sign, then that's what lets you operate if you want to be ethical about it in a way that you you know in your heart of hearts that I was invited here. I was welcomed to do this work rather than, hey, I thought it was cool, so I recorded a rap video. And I think, and you can speak to this in your own experience, I think people also don't do well in this digital age with discomfort because it is uncomfortable. Like going through that pathway, it's not going to be just a super comfortable, easy journey because nah, yeah. you're doing a lot of learning. Learning is hard in anything. I mean, All we've done growing up is learning. And I think once we get to adulthood, we're like, I would like to be done. (laughs) (laughs) But it is uncomfortable. And I wonder if this is true. But the way I understand the pathway you suggested, even when you get to that final stage, I think if you're coming into the culture, you're not from the culture, you're still learning. Like there are still points where you'll get corrected. It's still going to happen, obviously less and less as you do that work. But I think keeping that open mindset is helpful. And like you said, knowing that correction is part of the process and it's not a punishment. In fact, I would say if you've gotten to that stage of apprenticeship, people have taken you in and, you know, there's this bilateral relationship that it's actually an act of love. Like, hey, man, 
I see what you're trying to do. Not correct. Here's how to do it. People taking out that time means they care about you in some way, whether it's a very deep connection or it could just be casual, like you're my homie. I don't want to see you get caught up, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. And I think it's that real relationship is what gives you the space to do that, right? Because mm -hmm. one thing that I know is, is kind of just a rule of mine on social media is if someone don't love you, if someone don't care about you, if your failure or success would not matter at all to this person, don't let their opinion influence you. Right. Mm -hmm. Because we know like we're in an era where I know so many creators who some random account with no followers will say something super mean and it'll fuck up their whole day. And it's yeah. like, dude, just to survive, you can't listen to everyone's opinion because a lot of those people, if you die and you fail, and, you know, you take their advice and you change your whole life to match it. They don't care at all. So that's why I think it's so important to build actual relationships mm -hmm. with people that are invested in you. Because that way, when they say, yo, move a little different, you know, they're not just saying it to, you know, it's like a drive-by, man. These comment sections are yes. like drive-by shootings where just like someone will spend five seconds saying the meanest shit ever and then skirt off and not think about you anymore. You know, it. that's why you got to have relationships and communities around you that'll say, hey, I'm, I'm dedicated to you. I'm on this journey with you. I want to see you win. You winning helps me win. Now let's figure out together how to make each other stronger, kinder, more aware, more contextually tapped in. But yeah, I, I absolutely agree that this is, yeah, Lord knows on my side, I've had so many times on my journey where I was speaking out of turn or I was speaking out of ignorance and exactly, instead of shutting me down and kicking me out and excommunicating me, people said, or sometimes they didn't even say, you know, sometimes I can be super stubborn, but they just did different. They just showed me better. And after a while, you know, after a year, after two years, I was like, yo, you know, they're actually right. And then I changed, you know, and, and I think that's super important also in this era is we have to know that people are four dimensional beings. You know, it's not about where someone's at today. If what we're imagining is, yo, you've got to catch up to me right now. Dog, five years ago, I wasn't where I'm at right now. You mean right. that me five years ago shouldn't be allowed to speak until, you know, I'm me today? Because then I wouldn't be me now. You know, we need to, and I know that there's so many urgent issues and there's real harm being done sometimes. But also human beings take time to mature, you know, and we got to have faith in that process. Because if we try to rush it, we'll, we'll just wind up causing other in unintentional harm. I agree. I get so nervous with the way the internet moves when it comes to, for lack of a better word, cancel culture. But I don't mm -hmm. really like that word at all. But I think America in general and Americans being a product of what America is have this really punitive mindset that, you know, is brought up, I think, from like our carceral system. And we just have that mm -hmm. outlook. And so everything has to be punished and punished in some way. And there needs to be retribution. And that doesn't allow for rehabilitation and growth. Yep. And I feel like when you're especially speaking of cultural exchange, like that's so important because we've all made mistakes. Like, I don't know about you, but I I mean, like I said, y'all can cancel me for 12 year old me. Hey, <laughs> journal that had Chinese on and thinking it was Japanese that if you want. But, you know, 
that's why I feel so lucky that I made a lot of my mistakes. I'm still making mistakes, but a lot of like my bigger mistakes were when I was young and offline because it's so hard. It's so hard to navigate. I wonder how do we best encourage nuance in a world that craves simplicity so badly? I, th I think about this question actually a lot. This is something that's really been on my mind for like the last four or five years is this is the way it occurs to me. I say, how do we sell soft shit like people sell hard shit? And what I mean by that, right, like the hardliners, it's an easy sell, right? Hey, they're stealing the country from us. These cultures are inferior and corrupt and, mm -hmm. and pushing drugs and pushing things that are not good. <laughs> like, like we need to take back our country. The other hardliner also, hey, these people are ignorant. They're assholes. They're doing mm -hmm. violence to trans and queer and bodies of color. And mm -hmm. really, they're all just colonizers who've stolen land from indigenous folks like everybody just needs to shut up and get out of the way and and do right those are really easy sells right because both of those hardliner positions let you feel like you are perfect and like your opponent is human trash <laughs> the positions in the middle are less accommodating because they make you like you're saying like they make they make they force you to sit in discomfort and tension hey things are not good and there's no easy answer right both of these hardliner positions have easy answers they offer easy answers man if only all of these woke people would just shut up and just get part of the mm -hmm. system we'll get along hey if only these you know, and I'm not trying to equate the two morally, but oh, I sure. am trying to equate the two philosophically and ideologically mm -hmm. because these are both ideologies of righteousness and condemnation. Hey, the other side is the devil and we were on the side of rights. Psychologically, philosophically, it's a similar position. The positions in the middle, the nuanced positions, the positions of, hey, sometimes I'm going to mess up. And sometimes I'm going to hurt people and I'm going to ask for forgiveness. And sometimes you'll mess up and I'm going to try to forgive and we're going to try mm -hmm. to do better together. And sometimes somebody's too toxic and then they can't be part of that togetherness. That's so much harder. So that's something I think about a lot. I do think that a lot of it comes down to human connection, right? When we can see people as human beings. I was talking with my friend the other day about how Uber drivers really helped me because, you know, I, I tour a lot. I travel a lot to, to perform and to speak. And you, when you call an Uber to the airport, you never know who's going to show up. You know, it could be somebody <laughs> that's super like you. could be somebody that's super different from you. But still, you're stuck in this car for 15 to 45 minutes together. And, you know, there's times I'll just put on my AirPods and I'll just be on my phone. But I was remembering this one time I was in West Virginia going to a show and it was far away from the airport so i had like an hour in in the car with this dude you know older white dude started talking and sharing and you know there were certain questions we didn't ask each other because we didn't want an hour plus uber ride to get awkward but it was yeah. just more stuff about like hey how's your life what do you do and you know and i explained to him you know hey i'm here to do music and you know, i was like and they're always like oh what do you do i'm, oh, I'm a rapper and I, I do this, you know, and, and go, oh, what do you rap about? And I said, you know, well, I, I do a lot of talking about like Asian American community and experiences and culture. 
And then we had this really nice convo. And it was cool because, you know, I have no clue who the dude voted for. We were definitely in heavily red country. And this was like 2018, 2019, you know. So, but, you know, instead of skipping to where we may disagree, we got to have this nice convo about what I do and why it matters to me and how I grew up. And, and he was really kind and listened. And I think that convos like that give me a lot of, I don't want to say hope for the future, but it reinforces the fact that it's possible to be human together. You know, I don't know where the future is going. That's like, let's be real, man. Like that's in the hands of the corporations and the billionaires funding the political campaigns. But in terms of my ability to handle within the locus of my control, being human together, putting myself out in the world, not as just this collection of ideas and ideologies and things I believe, but putting myself out in the world as a human being. I do think sometimes that we get a little too caught up, right? So there's obviously there's the individualistic way of looking at the world. Hey, you know, race and identity and, and systems don't matter. What matters is you. And we all know this bullshit because, mm-hmm. you know, literally legally these systems discriminate matter based on race, <laughs> gender, etc. But those of us who are aware of systemic inequities, sometimes we get a little too systems minded and we start stripping away the agency and the mm-hmm. dignity of individuals. You know, I, it's so easy for me. It's so, so easy for me to look at a white person and just be like, oh, you're just white. That's it. Like you are mm-hmm. just a manifestation of this group identity that is whiteness with a capital W. And mm-hmm. so again, I'm not interacting with you as a human being. You're not even a human being. You're just the tangible manifestation of this system of oppression. But that also, I think, does it an injustice to the human reality of, yes, we are shaped by these systems. And yes, we do belong to certain things and experience things differently because of those. But we are also people, individuals with choice and agency and experiences. And for those of us who really passionately understand systemic inequity and desire systemic change, we've got to check ourselves and make sure we're not falling off the deep end into dehumanizing people by virtue of just seeing them as avatars of the system. We've got to remember that these are human beings around us. And yes, that's white people, but that's even, you know, self-tokenization is super common. I think it's super easy for me to stop seeing myself as Jason and start seeing myself as, oh, I'm a cisgendered Asian American man of East Asian descent and starting to value my identities more than my humanity when really the identities are in service. They, they shape our human experience. They impact our social location, but we are still fundamentally human beings. And that, I think, gives me hope for the possibility of connecting to others. That is so real. What you said, being avatars of the systems, really just resonated with me a lot because I think, you know, our brains are wired to make these shortcut judgments and they're, they yep. serve us to an extent. So don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, as they say. But it's true that I mix. I have a variety of family. I'm in an interracial relationship. So I've seen people grow in various ways, whether it's their thoughts on Black people, um, Latinx people, queer people. And, you know, there is safety in, like, protecting yourself from that for sure. 
but also I've seen the growth that can happen <laughs> and mm-hmm. seeing that in real time, in real life, not to say I, anybody I knew was like, you know, triple K out here or whatever, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know, like growth can happen. And mm-hmm. I hope that we can move in a way as individuals where we can encourage each other. I guess maybe one-to-one, that's how we have to do it. We just have to keep spreading the message. Like, let's see each other as humans. And maybe people listening to this will go into their lives and say, you know what? I want to try and interact with people on a human basis. And it sounds so basic, but it really is radical in this day and age, I think, because it feels like most people are not doing it. My little sister is 10 years younger than me. So she's Gen Z, solidly, Mm -hmm. very much online, graduated, was doing high school during quarantine and the pandemic. So extra online. And just the way I see her and her friends interacting with the world is very much through this, it feels like this veneer of like digital stuff. It's hard to explain, but if you see how Gen Z interacts with each other up close and personal, like it feels like that. And so I hope we can move away from that because I think that's where we can get into nuance and and actual change because yes these extreme things that you're talking about like they get big reactions but i think the actual change is happening on a human to human level in conversations that you have with your best friend with your mom and dad whoever it may be in your life about whatever it may be it doesn't even have to be cultural appropriation there's a lot of issues there's a lot wrong with the world um i do wonder if that's manifested for you in the hip-hop space because i think also, what's interesting about cultural exchange is that it's an exchange, right? So you're going in, in your case, into the hip hop space. But hip hop also is not, <laughs> they don't get an A plus as far as cultural appropriation, I don't mm-hmm. think, like historically. And I just wonder if that's come up in your time in the industry and how you approach that. I assume it's probably a person to person interaction, but I wonder how you've navigated that. I mean, I've been fortunate enough to just really attract like minded people around me. And, you know, like, like, there is a lot of fuckery out there, right? But I just prefer to avoid that because the way I see it, there's so much good work to be done. Like, why would we place ourselves around people that are not trying to do that good work? You know, like, of course, like, you know, there's so much out there that's ignorant. And I could spend my whole, whole, whole emotional energy on yelling at that. But again, them people don't know me. I don't know them. <laughs> You know, like I could spend 24 solid hours tweeting at Chris Brown and no one cares. Or Mm -hmm. I can meet people like you. Mm -hmm. I can be around people, friends and family, like my friend Mike De La Rocha, an incredible Latinx Chicano musician and community organizer. I can be around my friend Jamel, this incredible, incredible bilingual English Mandarin MC who lives uptown in Harlem. I have so many dope people in my life who want to do good work and I don't get enough time with them. Why would I spend my time screaming at someone I don't know who doesn't care about my opinion when instead I could be spending time creating and uplifting friends who are doing good work, you know? So that's kind of how I look at it is absolutely any community is going to have a spectrum. You know, mm-hmm. hip hop as a community, Asian America as a community, black people, like one way to say it is that hip hop is not woke or misogynist. Hip hop is everything, right? The other way to say mm-hmm. it is that hip hop is all of these things. But what is, and this is something that I think about a lot in, in the context of AAPI America, right? Asian American Pacific Islander America is which 
Asian America am I going to believe in, right? Which Asian America am I going to belong to? What's the story? Because, you know, like as storytellers, as creators, you know, as people who create things, we know that what we're giving people is our version of the world. There's no way to encompass every act of creation is an act of curation. So how am I going to curate the world and the narratives and the communities and the relationships so that what I'm investing my time, energy, emotional energy and network into is the version of the world that I believe in and I want to see come into being around me. That's how I deal with it. Obviously, it's not always as simple as that. There are times when, you know, worlds collide, two narratives come into conflict. I've got a buddy in Boston, this young uh, Chinese American rapper called Cole Kwan. You know, he just, towards the end of the spring, early summer, he had to uh, call out a black podcast host in Boston, who was also in the hip hop space, who was very racist against him and some other Asian American creators. And, you know, like that happens. Mm-hmm. But I think that what was really positive about that, I, I'm super proud of him that he stepped out and he stood up for himself and he stood up for the community there. But what was dope was that also he had spent so much time investing in relationships with black artists, with just people around the. He had people knew him, they respected him, they liked him. And so when this tension, when this clash came, people supported him because They knew he was somebody who was trying to build a good, positive vision of that space, you know? So Mm -hmm. even when it comes to those worldview clashes, I think the way we do that, like, yeah, we move smart, but if we're constantly preparing for war and for battle our whole life, then when that war battle comes, we don't actually got any allies. We don't have anybody jumping in with us because we spent our whole time obsessing over the people that we're going to fight that we never spent time building with the people we want to create with. And then when you go into conflict, now nobody's got your back because you never built anything with anybody. You were just obsessed with who's going to be your enemy. You know, so I think even if we're preparing for conflict, even if we know that tension is going to arise, that discrimination is going to happen, that, you know, not only the ignorant stuff, but, but people who just want to be assholes are out there. I still think that the best way to prepare for that is to click up and to find the people that align with you and to spend time growing together. I smile because I think of my own click and how important they are to me Mm -hmm. and to having that community, building community was not something I valued in my late teens, early 20s. But once you have it, you feel the power in it and you feel powerful because of it. And the only way to do that fortunately or unfortunately, is to get out there and, like you said, put yourself out there, whether that's to, you know, go on this pathway of authenticity or just to build community, to build community, knowing that people have your back is so powerful. And also it models what you've been saying. I do often think we spend so much time being angry online. And I think it's interesting that the way you deal with these tensions is just modeling in your life what you want to see, because that's From what you said, that's how you got to where you were with somebody modeled for you. And 
that's what was most effective for you and seems to be most effective in your work. And as I've come into the space as a podcast creator, specifically modeling what I want, I found other people who are modeling what they want. And like you mesh and you just, even if it's like on a creator to creator peer type of connection, that's so important. Knowing you're coming from the same place and intent and a similar vision. It doesn't even have to be exactly the same. You can differ from people for sure. But yeah, community is so, so valuable. I was hoping maybe you might have already touched on it because we've talked so much about cultural exchange and really covered a really beautiful breadth, I think. But I was wondering, what's the best piece of advice you've heard from somebody else regarding cultural exchange? I just think about how my social justice mentor, Diane Ujia, uh, how just how she lived. Diane's an OG in the Japanese American community in LA. She's done drug intervention and gang mediation and political lobbying for APIs in Sacramento. And I just think about how she always lives. Like she's got such a strong sense of self. But when she comes into spaces, because she's been doing, at the time, it wasn't even called solidarity work necessarily. It was just, you know, she was moving between these places that were Asian and that were black and that were, you know, at risk and all of this stuff. And I think of what she's modeled for me. Her current work is with API Rise, which is Mm -hmm. an org that a stiff carceral system impacted Asian American and Pacific Islander folks. Mm -hmm. So, you know, folks who've been inside serving life, serving life without parole, serving, you know, felony sentences, helping them get rehabilitated, get out, get into jobs, not go back in, uh, their family members, other people, service agencies. She's one of the co-leads at API Rise right now. And every time that I see her moving with, you know, people who've been inside, she brought me to a meeting with the leaders of, you know, the Black Panthers down in uh, Compton one time. And just seeing how she never changes herself to appeal to someone else, but she also never insists on them changing themselves to come to her. You know, she's super, super humble and, and meets people where they're at. But she's also, she has this strong moral compass and sense of self. And I think that there's so much in that about cultural exchange, because what I realized, you know, like if I'm an Asian dude coming into hip hop, I'm being a try hard, right? And I'm trying extra hard to be down and be cool. People don't want you to change yourself to meet them, you know, because it, it just comes off as pandering. You got to know how to hold this intention, right? How to be who you actually are while also being open to change and open to receiving. And I think that if there's one piece of advice that I've seen lived out, it's that we've got to live on that spectrum, not this binary sense of, hey, I can either be who I was or I can be this new, cool, aspirational thing. It's that the two are not separate things. They're actually just expanding your imagination of who you are in order to incorporate new learnings, new cultures, new experiences. I hope everybody can take that to heart. I hope people can sit with that because it's a different way of thinking. It goes against how I think society currently would like us to think. And honestly, how American culture specifically works. Mm -hmm. American culture works in binaries by design. That's a different discussion. (laughs) My last question is kind of a big, broad one, but what has been most rewarding in your work? The most rewarding piece of my work. I mean, I love making and I love giving. So like, I love it. My favorite times in the creative process are when I'm sitting down in the studio and we're just starting. It's just starting to hit, you know, like 
my producer pulls up a beat that sounds fire. I start writing something and it seems to be working. I love that piece. And then the middle part is tough. The production, the mixing message, it's all very excruciating. <laughs> and then when I get to perform the music and give it to an audience and see it hitting them on this last tour that I was on uh, this spring, like just going all over the country and seeing this stuff that my friends and I had worked on in our like, you know, bedrooms and living rooms and studios, seeing hundreds of people around the country here and there, seeing it hit them and then receive it for the first time. That's super rewarding. But, you know, in the end, I would say the biggest joy of this journey has been getting to become someone that I, I would be proud of. You know, I think a lot about like 14, 15, 16 year old me and who I wanted to become and that even kind of felt out of reach. But I was like, man, I would love to become this dude. And I think, you know, Lord willing that I'm closer to that than I was then. You know, I'm more this person that I wanted to be, that I hoped to be, that I needed to see uh, than I was when I was a kid. And that's really the most rewarding piece. Not any of the external affirmation or the accolades, the validation, but being able to look at myself, how I treat my partner, my relationship with my parents, my relationship with friends, my relationships with other people out there, and to see how I'm moving and living and to believe in a lot of it, to think that a lot of it is good and is what I wanted. That's the biggest reward. I also would hope to, I don't know that I'm there yet, but I feel like life is just that constant journey of being who you would hope younger you would look up to you. And I hope 10 years from now, I'm that person for me that I look up to now, you know? Yeah. Before we wrap up, I do always ask, is there anything you wish I had asked or hoped we had more time for? No, I mean, I feel like it's going to be an ongoing conversation, you know, maybe I'll be back one day, maybe, we'll, you know, we'll keep the conversation going on social medias, you know, through the album, Absolutely. if people want to listen, like just, it's all out there for people. So if there's anything else, I would say just keep going, and we'll do it again. Absolutely. I really appreciate you joining me. Go ahead, tell the good folks, this is your time to tell them where they can find you and what you've got in the works, because I know you've got things in the works. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, so you can find me everywhere at Jason CHU Music. So jasonchumusic.com on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, Apple Music, Spotify, anywhere you consume content. Just search for Jason Chu, CHU or Jason Chu Music. And my new project, We Were the Seeds, is coming out mid-August. Stay tapped in. Hit me, follow me on Instagram or Spotify. Uh, we Were the Seeds is eight tracks. Uh, we worked super hard on it. I'm really proud of it. Uh, and I'm super excited for y'all to hear it because hopefully it models a lot of what we just talked about. I'm really excited. You all should absolutely go listen. Go listen to his music. I know I really pushed the talk because it was very like revelatory for me. But please go listen to his music as well because it is really, really good. If I had to recommend. Can I just recommend one? Ugh, yeah. Real quick off top. I really love Animal Crossing. I feel like that's, hey. that's underrated. I really love Animal Crossing. I think it's real, real clever. But Foreigners is great. Dojo's great. Go, just go, go listen. Y'all just go do that. You're probably already on Spotify. It's easy. But thank you all for listening and joining me. Let me know what y'all think of the conversation. You can do that at CultureX Podcast on Twitter or IG, culturexpodcast.com, et cetera, et cetera. We will catch y'all later. And until next time, keep it chill and keep it nerdy. Thank you.